Wow, it's a big Sunday. We've got one last final announcement. I'm just here to introduce our guest speaker for today, Dr. Darren Lockett. We'll go to the fourth slide there. Uh, Dr. Darren Lockett is a professor of New Testament at Biola University. He did his PhD at St. Andrews University, Scotland, on the book of James specifically. So he's a specialist on the general letters, which is that part in the Bible that is from James to Jude. So also a specialist in First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John. He'll be not only preaching for us today and also next week. He's been teaching classes yesterday. Um, he'll be having meals with people throughout the week, and there are sign-up sheets actually in the back for more open slots for meals with him to get to know him, and he'll be ministering to us through those. And also on Thursday, I just want to mention that he'll be here at 7 p.m. We'll have a combined community group seminar, but it's really open for anyone. Um, but he'll be here to teach how we can see Jesus from the Old Testament. How do we read the Old Testament in such a way where it all points to Christ, that the moral examples in the Old Testament are not to be ends in themselves, but are actually pointers to the greater one who is coming, Christ the Messiah himself. So, And um, Dr. Darren Lockett is also a ruling elder in the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. He's married to Nicole. He's got three kids, Maddie, Evan, and Aiden. And um, let me pray for him as the scripture reader comes up, and then he'll come up to preach for us through First Peter as we continue our series. Father, what a privilege it is to hear your word come forth. Thank you, Lord God, for our guest here, bringing him safely. Thank you, Lord God, that he's become friends with us and um, that he can minister for us here for this week. Father, be with him as he preaches the word. Help us now focus and be attentive and help us grow through your scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. This is the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the God Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, just, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus says the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you for that introduction. It's cl- I'm very glad to be here. What a joyous time to worship together and to see new members come into the church and also to see people sent out to plant churches around the city. It's very exciting. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 or maybe just hold the bulletin there because I'll be referring to the text. Maybe you can remember your first day at school, anticipating new classes, new friends, navigating a new context where you're not known yet, all kinds of possibility. Who are you going to be? What kind of friends are you going to make? What kind of person will you become by taking this course of study? I remember vividly, maybe Gray would remember this as he began his studies in Edinburgh. I remember taking my New Testament studies at St. Andrews. I remember This was such a monumental moment in my life. I had waited for it for so long. I was excited about this new thing that was happening. I remember waking up on the first day of school and I had to remind myself, oh, I'm in a new country. I start my course of study today. It was an enormous moment. I was about to learn a new language, study new subjects, learn about new texts. I was in the process of becoming someone different I had to discover a whole new system, a whole new academic language in a new country. There were all kinds of new things. And along with this new moment, there was a new identity. I was becoming someone. At the same time, this was a new context in which I would be known. My identity was attached to how I lived in front of other people. In a new context and in this new moment, I had to make choices about how I would interact with other students. I had to decide to live out my new identity in the context of a group of other people who were watching me. This is Peter's point here in this section of his letter. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the, the first part that we read, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is a turning point in the whole letter. Up to this point in Peter, in 1 Peter, he's been talking about a new theological identity that followers of Christ have. Peter has been describing this new identity in Christ as those who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People who are guarded by God's power Those who are called to be holy, our new identity is as those who are redeemed from an empty life. Those who have been called out of darkness into the glorious, marvelous light of Christ. Newborn infants that desire the pure milk of the word. This is the identity that Peter has been describing and telling his his audience that as new followers of Christ, this is who you are. You have been changed. Here in verses 11 and 12, the the letter transitions from identity to conduct. Here, Peter then begins to focus on how we live out this new identity in the context of a watching world. That's why I've titled the sermon, A Life Worth Watching. Christians are called to live a life worth watching. Here, Peter wastes no time and starts to say, Hey, now that we know who we are, 
What are our priorities? How should we live? How do we engage the world around us so that we can put on display our new identity? But through that new identity, we put on display the gospel. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 first. And there I derive my first two points uh, in verses 11 and 12 first. New identity in Christ reorients our notion of home. That's in verse 11. Second, though our home is now in heaven, our mission continues to be to this earthly city. That's verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Though our home is in heaven, our mission is to the earthly city. Uh, then we'll move on to look at Peter's first example of living a life worth watching in the midst of society. And we're going to focus on verses 13 through 17. Uh, and I'll preach on the rest of the passage that was read next week. But here in this first example of how to live in the sight of a watching world, here my third point is uh, that we see that mission to the earthly city is accomplished through submission. This might be an ironic way of accomplishing mission, but Peter calls us here first to submission to Christ, but then submission to structures in society around us. We'll see that in the third point. So first, first, a new identity, new identity in Christ reorients our notion of home. Look at verse 11, the first verse of the passage. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war in the soul. Notice that Peter calls his audience strangers and exiles. This language connects all the way back to the very beginning of this letter, where Peter described his audience as those who are chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. The ESV version reads, Peter writes to those who are elect exiles. Think about those two words with me for a minute. Elect, exile. I would call that an oxymoron. Do you know what an oxymoron is? It's like calling something a jumbo shrimp or deafening silence or pretty ugly. That one, don't use that one. Uh, <laughs> but the idea of an oxymoron, how can Christians both be chosen and exiles at the same time? It's as if Peter is saying, we belong, but we don't belong. We're chosen, and at the same time, we're not at home. Here in the verse that we just read, verse 11, Peter adds one more word to that description. He calls us not only chosen or elect exiles, but he also calls us strangers here. This word describes someone who is a resident alien, a resident foreigner, someone who lives in a place that is not their home. Peter is saying that our Christian identity makes us people who are chosen, but as a result of our elect status, we become exiles you see that our new identity in Christ here then reorients our notions of home. Usually we form and understand our identity by understanding where we came from, our nationality, what language we speak, our family name, relationships of honor and obligation perhaps to our family or extended family, even our choices of education, school, job, and even the neighborhood we live in. 
All of these things shape our identity, how we think about ourselves, how we carry ourselves, the things we expect. But Peter here is saying that these means of identity formation are now reorganized. They're reoriented by a more primary, a more fundamental sense of identity now that we derive from Christ. God's election renders followers of Jesus exiles in this earthly city. Look at the end of verse 11. The first thing Peter says to these people whose new identity is that of exiles and strangers, he says that we must abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our souls. As a result of our new identity, There's transformation that comes from it. We're granted the identity through the strength and power of Jesus Christ. But the power of Christ in us begins to transform how we live our lives. And Peter here is saying we should resist sinful desires that that are still alive within us. We have a new identity, but we still struggle with these desires. In the ancient world, like many parts of today's world, there is a a tendency to assume that the more someone could gratify their fleshly desires, the more happy they would be, the more fulfilled they would be. That assumption is alive and well in the city all around us. But here Peter is saying that our new identity leads us to a new kind of life. We no longer live just to satisfy our bodily desires. That's no longer our primary purpose. Rather, we've been given a gift, the gift of new life in Christ Peter goes on to say in chapter 4, he says, look, there has been enough time that you have already spent your time in doing what the Gentiles or the non-Christians choose to do. Peter is saying, look, you've already lived in the world long enough. You've been called out of that. These things that we used to take comfort in, especially maybe pampering every creaturely comfort or fleshly desire, this is no longer the way that we are called to live a fundamental change has taken place which reorients our notion of home. This, this idea uh, comes to the surface in the famous political work called The City of God, written by St. Augustine. Uh, here, Augustine distinguishes between the city of God and the earthly city or the city of man. These two cities or societies are, are marked out by the standards by which people live. The earthly city lives by the standard of the flesh. They're following what just pleases them. Whereas the city of God is marked out by the spirit. Augustine says this, We see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by selfish love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city is created by the love of God, carried as far as contempt for the self. So the earthly city is based upon selfish love or cupidity, something that Augustine talks a lot about. Or the heavenly city, on the other hand, is characterized by disinterested love or charity. And it's our love, something that Tazar mentioned earlier in the service. It's our loves that actually distinguishes who we're living for. It's what we love the most. It's what we worship the most. That's where we can tell where our citizenship, where our identity lies. Therefore, to live as strangers and aliens means that our lives are going to be different morally from the lives of the people 
who we share a neighborhood with or go to work with. Peter here is stressing that the thing that shapes Christians the most is is their new identity in Christ. It's not their religious attitude. It's not their morality. Those things are important. But the thing that distinguishes the new Christian identity is this new love. This new identity means that the object of Christian love and desire is God himself. First John 4.10 says this, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We don't even know love until we see it in Christ. And that love then rearranges our affections. It rearranges our identity. It reorients our sense of home and belonging. This is what makes us strangers and exiles, this new love. This new love is what begins to transform our identity and our actions. We no longer identify ourselves uh, by our earthly citizenship, our citizenship in the city of man, but by our membership in the city of God. And I want to stress here the idea that as Peter is calling us strangers, foreigners, and he calls us to live a new moral life, that we can't change ourselves merely by thinking Or we can't change ourselves merely by an act of the will, but rather we are changed by what we love. We change when we change what we worship the most. This is the key to our identity and the changed life that comes from our identity. It's a new love that is born in us through the gospel. So that's the first point. Our our new identity in Christ actually reorients how we understand ourselves, how we understand home. Second, though our home is in heaven, our mission is still to the earthly city. We can't get this wrong because our identity now is in Christ and our true home is in heaven. That doesn't mean we leave the world around us behind. Instead, our calling, our new identity... The new love that is inside us actually compels us into mission. Look at verse 12. Look at what Peter says on the heels of marking our new identity and and calling us to abstain from sinful desire. In verse 12, he says this, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. When Peter uses the word Gentile, he means non-believer, someone who is not a Christian. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Peter here is calling Christians in their new identity to live conspicuously good lives before the watching, unbelieving world. We're supposed to be on display. A couple of comments here about about how this works. First, notice that desire for God or our new love leads us into mission. Instead of having us detached from the world around us, our our new identity actually leads us right back into the world around us. Rather than turning away from culture or condemning non-believers, we are to serve them by living out our new identity conspicuously in front of them. A new identity in Christ demands mission. 
Peter goes on to say that this, this mission uh, is accomplished by living, as I have said, conspicuously good lives among the Gentiles. Here in just a moment in the third point, I'm going to say more about that. What does it mean to let our good works show in front of others? How do we live conspicuously good lives? Peter's going to say something more about that down in verse 15. But, but the first notion here is that though our citizenship is in heaven, this actually drives us into mission. It drives us back into the city so that we put on display this new identity. But in verse 12, another point needs to be made, and this is that as we put on our new identity in Christ uh, conspicuously before non-believers, this means setting aside our rights and submitting to ridicule, to misunderstanding, and even to persecution, because mission is costly. Peter knows that Given the the bias of unbelievers against God, even the good that Christians do will be misunderstood and sometimes slandered. This certainly happened in the first century. There's an example I can give you from the 19th of July in the year 64. A great fire broke out in the city of Rome, which destroyed most of the city. Because suspicion initially fell upon him, Nero blamed the Christians in the city for the fire that consumed Rome. This touched off a season of intense persecution of the church. But even prior to Nero's false accusations against the church, even prior to this, it was very obvious that Christians were generally despised and misunderstood in Roman culture. Suetonius himself called Christian Christianity a new and evil suspicion. And Tacitus claimed that it is a destructive superstition. It's infamous for their antisocial behavior. This was a Roman perspective of Christian life. Peter knows he lives in a context where it's dangerous and costly to be on mission in the secular society. Peter knows that the opposition against Christians will not be limited to gossip or slander or lies or misrepresentation. Christians will also be accused in courts. False charges will lead to perhaps imprisonment, even death. This is the kind of situation Peter sees. But notice that, and notice further, the passage says in verse 12, he says, it's not if they slander you as evildoers, it's when. It's when they misunderstand We should expect to face misunderstanding and opposition. I know that's hard. It's really hard to continue to do good when your good intentions are misunderstood. But here, I think way too often, we live in a sense of entitlement. We expect that other people will know our good intentions. We expect people to understand us. And we grab on to maybe a sense of entitlement to that. And then we are offended when you don't understand that I'm actually trying to do something good. But Peter is saying here that we have to let go of that, that we should actually expect to be misunderstood. And in that moment, endure, persevere, continue to put on display our new identity, even though people are going to misunderstand what we're doing. Mission to an unbelieving world will inevitably lead to suffering and slander, yet even in the face of such opposition and injustice, Peter knows that a Christian witness will not be lost in either our day or in his. The watching world will see the good deeds of the Christian community, and our new identity will be a witness, a witness to the gospel. 
Third point is this, that how do we begin enacting this mission? How, how do we begin to live a life that is worth watching? Peter begins to give us specific examples of this. Then my third point here is that mission to the earthly city is accomplished through submission to God by means of submission to the order of society. His, his first example here is in verses 13 to 17. Uh, look at verse 13. He says, submit. That's the first word in this passage in my translation, submit. This, this key word, submit, it's going to appear all through the next examples that we'll consider the first one today, and next week we'll look at two more of the examples. The verb submit introduces this entire section. And in this section, Peter describes various contexts in which Christians live their identity in the context of society. In the passage we're about to look at, it's in the public sphere, politically, in the civic sphere. In the next, uh, we see instructions to household slaves, how slaves should submit to their masters. The next section describes Jesus' own submission. And finally, the last section discusses the submission of husbands and wives. In each of these social contexts, Peter is saying that Christians should put on display their new identity in Christ for the sake of mission. One area where we are to put on our new identity is displayed in the civil or political sphere. Here, as we just heard read in verse 13, Peter argues that we should submit ourselves to every human authority, whether the emperor or to governors. This is a challenging command in Peter's time because, as I've just mentioned, it's likely Nero who is the emperor. This might, ask, or this might act, uh, call us or lead us to ask a question, how can Christian submission to evil rulers bring about a good witness? How, how does that work? How does that work in Peter's time, but how does that work for us today? How do we describe our submission in the political sphere? A few, a few observations about what Peter is teaching here. First, Though Christians are commanded to submit to the emperor or to governors, the verb submit, hupatasso in Greek, it does not entail loyalty to the government or to governing powers. Instead, being subordinate or submitting to the emperor or to governors is to respect their authority and to show honor in the appropriate way. But it doesn't mean that our fundamental loyalty is behind one political party or one person or even one state. Peter is very careful here to distinguish between loyalty and submission. It's the first point. Second, Peter then declares that such civic participation, how Christians submit in the sphere of politics, must be done, verse 13, because of the Lord... So why do we submit? Not because the government extracts it from us, but because, because the Lord. We're doing this as worship to God. We're submitting to political structures in our society for the Lord. But Peter goes on and says that we should submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Out of obedience to the Lord Jesus, we submit. But notice that our submission isn't servile. It, it isn't an unthinking submission. Peter says we should submit as free people. He, here, Peter touches on something that is ironic, maybe, 
for us. But our new identity in Christ bears this truth out. And here's the truth. That Christian freedom, rather than being complete liberation from responsibility within society, actually requires us to submit to human authority. This idea is that to be free as a Christian means to be a slave to God. Think about Israel's experience. They were enslaved to Egypt, and then God raised up Moses to liberate Israel from Egyptian captivity. But do you know where Israel went right after that? They went to Mount Sinai, and there they enslaved themselves to God in covenant. What this is telling us is that real Christian freedom, we are most free as Christians when we are submitted and slaves to Jesus Christ. Our identity is as slaves of Jesus Christ. But instead of that offending us or wanting, maybe we'd want to throw that off, actually we're most free when we are slaves to Jesus. And in fact, we can then turn and submit to the social structures of society as free people because our Loyalty and our service is to God. So too here, Christians are to experience their freedom in their somewhat paradoxical status as slaves to God. Christian freedom, therefore, does not rest in the escape from service, disconnect from society, but rather a change in master. I'm no longer my own master. Jesus is my master. Notice here, look at verse 17. One more point to make. Uh, notice that Peter says, honor everyone, in verse 17, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Here, once again, Peter ends this section by emphasizing that our loyalty, our fundamental commitment is to God. Even though we honor the emperor, we fear. And that's not a cowering fear. That's a reverential awe and respect, a submissive fear to God. This is how we are to engage with society. Look in verse 15 then, as Peter uh, tells us to submit, uh, but submit as free, free people. Verse 15, what's the purpose for this submission? Verse 15 says, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. To be clear in context here, doing good is not merely private acts of Christian piety, reading your Bible and praying. Those are things that we need to do to stay alive in Jesus. But Peter is talking about public deeds. He's talking about acts that even a non-Christian would see the action and say, that's good. That's beneficial. This is good for society. Though Peter's Christian audience... Um, And the people that they are surrounded by in the culture of the time, they are living out strikingly different values. Nonetheless, Peter expects that there are enough common or there is enough common ground between Christians and non-Christians that when Christians do good, non-Christians can observe it and see it. And it'll make them question, why are you doing that? It's as this kind of Christian witness and identity is on display that the witness begins to permeate the city. Our new identity in Christ demands that we seek out these good deeds and do them in submission to human authorities, but ultimately out of our loyalty and identity before God. It's in this way that the church can witness to the watching world. This is a life worth 
watching. Now, here in conclusion, I just I, I want to be careful to avoid two unhealthy extremes. On the one hand, when submitting to governors or moving in uh, society, Christians could merely accept the status quo. The church could become so involved in public works, in good works, or in politics that the church becomes indistinguishable from, say, the Republican Party in the United States. There is a lack of tension, then, between the church and the world. And in this case, the mission is muted. The witness is not seen. On the other hand, Christians could have the opposite uh, response. They could reject society and culture only to slip into a disengaged ghetto. Here, the lines between the church and society are so sharp, and the Christian community uh, exists in such a way that it judges the world around them that there's a disconnect. Worried that Christians who participate in society and earthly politics have taken their eyes off of Jesus, these Christians argue for withdrawal. Neither of these options are good. Tim Keller writes this, we must not think that it is really possible to transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those Christians who try to avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. Since no human society reflects God's justice and righteousness perfectly, supposedly apolitical Christians are supporting many of the things that displease God. So, to not be political is to be political. Then he gives an example. He says, churches in the U.S. in the early 19th century did not speak out about slavery because they would be getting too political. This was an act of supporting slavery and the status quo by staying silent. So rather than uncritical acceptance of society or outright rejection and withdrawal, we must live within the structures of society in order to transform them by the powerful witness of the gospel. Peter calls this witness a faithful presence. And this faithful presence, um, living out a Christian identity in front of a watching world, this is what leads to cultural renewal. But not only do we submit in order to see the culture renewed, but brothers and sisters, we see that Jesus himself, he lived within society. Jesus himself submitted himself to the civic and religious leaders of the day. He took on human likeness in order to transform us. Peter argues a few verses uh, earlier in chapter 1. He says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited by your fathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. As we heard in our opening call to worship this morning, Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ gives us new identity. He submitted to the political authorities and suffered and died for the sake of the gospel of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, his life is one worth watching. As we watch Jesus's life, may we be transformed in our Christian identity so that we might live in a world 
and show Christ to all those who are watching. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your voice in your words this morning. Lord God, you have given us a new identity in Christ. You have caused us to be born again to a living hope. I pray, Father, that this living hope would so transform us and send us into a world that is watching that a witness for the gospel would be so clear. Lord, do these things. We cannot do them ourselves. We pray that you would renew us and send us out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.